Tonight, we're talking about missions. Last week, we talked about evangelism. The real core question was, does evangelism work? We were daring to ask questions about, should we just ditch evangelism entirely? And we went through that talk. Tonight, related topic, we're going to be talking about missions. Does missions work? And if it does, how is it going to work? I'm going to give you guys a little bit of my own thoughts tonight to kick off. Because I know that if I ask you to raise your hand, if you think that we should do missions, everybody's going to raise their hand. I mean, who's going to say, let's not do missions? That's not going to be anybody in here. We, I think we know better. So, yeah, people have been on missions. They're going to go, let's not do that again. You know, especially, especially anybody who's been on a mission trip that I led. We're like, that, was that missions? Like, we didn't, we didn't get anywhere. Okay, so missions. Let's talk about it from a different angle. If we're not going to debate whether we should be doing it or not, I want to talk a little bit tonight about how. Some visualization to start off with today on this topic. Just some questions. You don't even have to answer these. Just think about them in your mind as we walk through these. What do you think of when you think of missions? When I bring up the topic missions, do you think about some of these images on the screen? Maybe some people in Nepal, some people in like... Uh, maybe Kenya over there, some people in Mexico, maybe in Jordan. Is that the kind of thing you think of when you think of missions? You know, pictures of people who look nothing like us in some strange picture, you know? Is that what you think of? Is that the concept? Just let it dwell in your mind for a moment. Because really, when you talk about a subject like missions, it really depends on what we're talking about. And what we're talking about depends on what you imagine when someone says the word missions. During our whole series on Examine Your Vision, the reason I call it that is because a lot of us are kind of, the vision's a little bit out of focus. For us, we're like talking about a word, but we don't all mean the same thing. So I'm just curious, is this what you think of when you think of missions? When we talk about what we do on missions or how we get there, is this what we think of? Is this our idea of missions in the church? Have a bunch of car washes and cookie bake-offs and things like that to raise a few bucks at a time to get to some trip somewhere? Is that what missions is about? Is it about going to other countries and building things for them because they can't build for themselves? Kind of like a, a version of, what's that show on TV where they show up and they just build the house for you or whatever it's called? Makeover. Yeah, like Extreme Makeover, World Edition. You know, like we just show up some country, you know, a bunch of people wearing Levi's and having hammers and we just start building them houses. Is that what missions is for us? Is that what the concept is? Is this what missions is? Are you required to have a picture like this on some website to raise money for you? These are actually four pictures of four real missionary couples. I just did a search on missionaries on the web, and these are the couples. I don't know if you're required to have a husband, wife with a girl and a boy in the picture, you know, like the exact 4.0 you know, 4 family, there it is, you know. I don't know if you're required to look like, you know, you're having the greatest time, you know, smiling like that. I don't know. Is that what missions is? Is that who we parade in front of our churches on Sunday mornings when we say, hey, the Hoovers just got back from like Orangatanga, you know? Let's bring them up here and make them say a few words in that native dialect, you know? Like, hoogala boogala, hoogala boogala. That means like, Jesus loves you. And then the congregation gets like all proud. We clap. We move them off in three minutes or less because we got to get moving to more important things. Is that what missions is for us? Do you have to have a picture like that? Does your wife have to cut her hair short? Okay. <laughs> Is this what missions is? A chance for white people to take pictures with dark people? Is that what missions is all about? Your, your chance to kind of like show up to a country where everybody's darker than you and show them love and bring them money and candy and a whole bunch of supplies. By the way, in case you can't find the white people in this picture, I thought I'd point them out to you. 
So just, just in case you're missing them, there, oh, there they are. Those are the white people in the picture, circled. Just in case you can figure out who was the white person, who was the dark person in the picture. Is that what missions is? Because you know, I can't tell you how many images like this I found on the web. Not only on the websites of some Christian organizations, but almost every website. It seemed like the American concept, at least, and tonight we're going to be talking about the American concept of mission, seemed to be some place where young white men and women go to hang out with people of a different nationality. Hey, maybe that's exactly what it's supposed to be. But I want to know, is that what we portray as an image, and is that right or wrong? Is this the image of missions? Making sure that every single one of us has a backpack so that we can be easily identified anywhere on the world as the American missionary? Making sure that we take flannel along and shorts no matter where we go? And men, making sure that you're wearing flip-flops or sandals no matter where you are in the world, that this is your missionary gear. This is how people identify us as American missionaries because we have to have the right gear, otherwise we're not really missionaries. That's just the question I want to throw out there. Like, what is missions? Because all of us would say, yeah, we should be doing it. But what exactly is it? Here's some uh, factoids about missions that maybe start to change that perception we were just talking about. At the beginning of this century, only 10% of the world's Christians lived in the South and Eastern continents. In other words, 90% of the world's Christians lived in North America and Europe, and also if you count Australia and New Zealand. That's where all the Christians were. Christianity kind of became a European thing. It became a Western thing. And then it was our job to go back and repopulate all those people with Christianity somehow. So we took it out in our way. We kind of Americanized it, Westernized it, and then tried to export it to other countries, hoping that they would adopt not just the Christianity, but the way that we practiced it. The problem with that where we're sitting today is today at the 21st century, 70% of the world's Christians live in a non-Western world. As people look at our civilization, they call us the post-Christian world because everyone is going somewhere else. Not just because they're leaving, but because we're losing Christianity in our own borders. Here's some more facts that I found. More Christians worship in Anglican churches. Remember, Anglican churches, where that come from? That was the Church of England, remember? More Christians worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than all the Episcopal and Anglican churches in Britain, Europe, and North America combined. A lot of us think that we're going to take Christianity over there. Not in that denomination. There are more Baptists in Congo than in Britain. There are more people in church in China than in all of Western Europe combined on any given Sunday. And I know people, we've had people in this group too who work for different minister organizations who are shipping people over to China. And I'm not saying that China doesn't need missionaries. I mean, if China has 100 million Christians, they've got 1.6 billion people, not a big percentage, still need help. But in terms of actual numbers, we're always thinking of the mission field as somewhere like that. We don't think of like maybe the mission field should be England, France, uh, Nevada. There are 10 times more assemblies of God members in Latin America than in the United States. And you guys know the Assemblies of God is one of those denominations that's one of the only ones that's really advancing and growing. Apparently, it's taking hold in Latin America. Okay, there's some good things from the United States still, so let's not bag on us too much. The United States remains the single largest contributor of Protestant cross-cultural missionaries. The most Protestant 
cross-cultural missionaries still come to the United States. What's the number two country? South Korea is a good guess. It's not South Korea, and China's not a bad guess. Anyone know? Anyone out there guess? Not Australia. Mexico. Not Mexico. It's going to surprise you probably. It's not Japan. It's India. Do we think of Christians in India? Do we think that there even are Christians in India? Do you know that there are so many Christians in India, they're starting to send missionaries outside of India? I mean, that's the number two source of Protestant missionaries is coming out of India, leaving India to go other places. There's a statistic, I don't have it in, in my mind, but I think it's for every one missionary we send to India, there's a hundred Indian Christians working already in India on their own people and across the different cultures that are in that nation. So a lot of us have this image sometimes. That's why I want to ask, what's your image of missions? Is it that there's a vibrant church in India growing and developing and sending missionaries to other parts of the world? Or are they waiting for us to show up with our hammers and build them a house or feed them? More than half of the Protestant missionaries today come from non-Western countries. And today there are more Korean missionaries than British missionaries. And some Nigerian evangelical mission organizations are larger in personnel than the Western ones. Nigerian evangelical mission organizations? I mean, do you think of that when you think of missions? That they're sending people abroad? That they have their own aid programs for other people? Or do we think of them as just sitting there waiting for us to show up with our backpacks and flip-flops and hand out food, preach the Bible like, like they've never heard it before? It's part of a cultural shift that I think we have to understand as missions. I think everybody in here is like, yeah, yeah, mission's good. Mission's good. I think we as American Christians need to start realizing that there's a whole new paradigm of missions that we have to adopt. Here's my comments. We need to break the habit of referring to the mission field as every other place in the world. And you notice I put in quotes, the third world, because that's usually where we think we got to go. Because we don't usually think about, hey, we should do a mission trip to Canada. We think mission trip. Head somewhere hot. Every other place in the third world outside of our own country. We've got to break that habit. Christianity likely reached India and Ethiopia before it ever reached Britain or Ireland. And that's biblical. That's what happened to do the results of the works of the apostles in the Acts Church and beyond. We have texts in the second, third, fourth centuries on that the gospel was going south before it ever went north. Before it ever reached other places. But we continually think of missions in terms of an Americentric view of the world. God's entire plan and the entire Bible narrative takes place in the Middle East, not Indiana. But most of us don't have that concept. Here's a quote that I found from this. This guy's Christopher Wright, Upside Down World and Christianity Today. He's asking the question, if the West has lost so many Christians... Can it be re-evangelized? Here's what he says. Can the West be re-evangelized? Only if we unlearn our default ethnocentric assumptions about real Christianity, meaning our own views of what Christianity is, and unlearn our blindness to the ways Western Christianity is infected by cultural idolatry. It may be more blessed to give than to receive, but is often harder to receive than to give. That reverses the polarity of patron and client and makes us uncomfortably aware that what Jesus said to the, to the church in Laodicea, 
might apply to us in the West. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You guys know that I don't just throw up quotes by people just for the heck of it. This is a pretty intense quote if you break it down. First, it identifies that we have a cultural bias towards our own version of the gospel. A friend of mine who ministers in Russia, is a pastor, came to stay with Lena and I. One time he was explaining to us that when missionaries first went to Russia after the fall of communism, they found him because he was a musician and they asked him to start to lead worship for their churches. And the first task they gave him was they gave him American hymns and American worship songs and told them, translate these into Russian so that you can sing the right songs. I mean, he was like, some of these words don't sound so good in Russian when you sing them. Some of these words just don't fit the melody. But he was like, they was told, this is what songs we have in the church. Do you think that in the early church, in the Acts church, they were singing out of a hymnal? Do you think in the early church in the Middle East that they even used the same scales and chords that we even know? I mean, those are adopted from the Western scales and the Western chords. I mean, do you think that some of those great masters of music who wrote music would be singing as the deer panteth, you know? But he had so much difficulty trying to do that. He finally, after forming his own church, broke free and started a tradition which we now think is a good thing. Even we're doing it in our churches here. He started writing music in Russian for Russians, for a Russian experience of what Christianity was all about. It also ignored the fact that Christianity had been in Russia for many centuries. It wasn't like when the evangelicals dropped in after communism checked out that they just threw in a, hey, by the way, you probably never heard of this. Like, no, they'd heard of it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Maybe it had been buried, changed, altered, but they still had some basis. But rather than reaching back to the cultural tradition of Christianity in those countries, the missionaries came in and said, let's just give you our version because it's better. And maybe they didn't use those words, it's better. But it was implied in the way it was done. Isn't America this kind of give and receive type of nation? You know, we're so comfortable with the idea of American missionaries giving to the world. The Western world giving Christianity to us, the world, forgetting that we had to first receive it from the early churches who were not in the West. And reminding us in Revelation where it says, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We're losing our foothold as Christians in the West. And it's time for us to start to accept that we ourselves probably need to think of the West as another mission field. And yeah, even to accept help from all the different missionary organizations around the world who are probably looking at America thinking, you guys need just about as much help as anybody. None of us are going to ditch missions. But I think it makes a point tonight while we're talking about this to make a case for why we even do missions. You guys know we talked about this last week as a justification for evangelism. Same verses back here as a justification for missions. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You guys know when we focus on this thing that this is what we're looking at right here. That's the point. 
okay? Sounds easy. Sounds like, oh yeah, we're supposed to go. I mean, it says that right there. So I don't think any of us are going to quibble with scripture. But here's the point that's been gaining a lot of popularity in our churches, in my opinion, in the last 10 to 20 years. And it's infected us everywhere. You guys ever heard this quote right here? The quote says, you don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. You guys ever heard this sermon before? It's very popular in our churches to remind people, you don't have to go to Africa to become a missionary. So when we talk about, okay, what's your image of missions? Now we talk about what's your response to missions. And for a lot of us, we've heard a sermon that says, you know what, you don't have to go anywhere. Even though we just saw in the Great Commission, he's saying, you got to go. You got to go. And if there's any, I'm not focusing wrongfully on the word go. I mean, because he does say to all nations. I mean, he's not, he's not like just saying go like next door. He's actually telling us where. Go and make disciples of all nations. So at least some of us, in fact, most of us probably have to go somewhere at some point. Phil. I have a question just because this is like, just because you've been looking at the definition of missions, and I'm struggling with the difference between the definition of missions and evangelism. But at this point, like you said, most of the world, most nations have at least some Christian presence there. Maybe stronger in some, lesser in some, but most nations have it. And so... I think that's right that the world has changed in fact that the awareness of Christianity is more. But let me answer first the question on definition, and then I'll talk about why I still think there's a go requirement. On the definition, artificially, I've defined evangelism last week as that intentional action to go to people around you and like knock on doors or bring up conversations to drive to a decision for Christianity. Okay? In missions, I'm adding a tweak to that definition, which is the go part. Missions is the part where you do it not in your own immediate area. That's what makes it a mission. Now, does it mean you have to go off the continent? I would even think if you went out of the state or out of the immediate area, you might be on a mission trip. Like if I went to San Francisco, I'm clearly probably on a mission trip at that point, in my mind at least, under my definition of going. It's adding that layer to evangelism where you're actually moving out of your immediate area. Okay? And here's why. I've heard this sermon a lot of times. You don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. What we were trying to tell people is a little bit of what we're struggling with right now. People were so afraid of going to Africa, by the way. People were not going to quit their jobs or even, by the way, take a short-term mission, like take their three weeks of vacation or two weeks of vacation and go to Africa. So they were starting to feel somehow guilted or out of it. So our churches started saying, you don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. You could be a missionary right here in Azusa. You could be a missionary right here in San Dimas. Wherever your community is, you could be a missionary right here in Pasadena. The truth is we weren't really being missionaries, not because of my definition, but because we were doing nothing at all. We were saying, oh, good, I'm off the hook. I don't have to go to Africa. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I could be a missionary to my, my coworkers. And I think this has done a little bit of damage in the church by saying you don't have to go. I know the intent was good. The intent was to say, don't feel bad if you can't go on a mission trip because most of you have to work and you have jobs. You can be a missionary right here. That was a good intention statement. But I still think it did a little bit of harm because we, the, what people heard was, oh, good, I don't have to go anywhere. And what they did was hear and do, I don't have to do anything. Here's the way I would finish the sentence. You don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary, but it might be a good idea to go somewhere. Why go somewhere? Look at what Jesus says in this passage. This might answer what you're itching at. This is from Luke 4, 23 and 27. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. Where is he preaching? He's preaching in Nazareth. He's preaching in Galilee at the beginning of his ministry. And here he happens to be in his hometown of Nazareth. 
Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he gives these examples from the Old Testament. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three years and a half and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What are you talking about? Why am I bringing this up? Just to highlight, and his examples support this, this is my theory on why Jesus made sure to tell us to go. Because he's talking about this phrase. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Take that concept into missions for a moment and see if it works for you. When people live around us, work around us, when we are neighbors to them, we can do some powerful evangelism in terms of building relationships like we talked about last week. But there's also a truth that even Jesus knew that in his own hometown, he was rejected because people kind of knew him too well. He wasn't a novelty enough to them. He wasn't a stranger enough to them. I believe, and I, it's, some, some people agree and some people don't, but that Jesus from his own experience knew that we would be better received and have better opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have when you actually pick up and go to someplace else and become a stranger in a different land. You might build relationships there. I'm not saying you have to stay a stranger. But there's something that happens to us and there's something that happens to the people that were there. And I've seen this firsthand on the mission field. When you go to a foreign country, and we've done this a number of times in Russia, but we've done it in other countries as well. People want to know, like, what are you doing here? Why have you come this far? Why are you in our country? What have you brought for us? What do you have to say? And it almost gives you an audience to begin to explain what you're doing there. You get a stage that you don't get in other places because you're somehow a little bit different. And they want to know. Notice that Jesus also would send out his disciples in a different place to go, go into the other towns where you're not from. Notice how the Acts church moved around in the same way. Now, you don't have to stay a stranger. Paul moved around his missionary journeys and he stayed in touch and he built relationships with many of the churches that he planted. But Paul saw that it was best to move out and move around. Same thing. Because I believe that this example and the Old Testament examples that Jesus gives remind us that there are times when it's better to be sent and be in other places because they'll hear the word better there when you're from a different place. We've done short-term missions over a five-year period where we've gone back to the same place. So we would go back to see how it transpired. And the beauty of it was you got to see that it wasn't just like a one-time event, but our novelty wore off. By the fourth or fifth year, people didn't even want to talk to us anymore. The first year, they were just like, they would show up in mass just like we were like animals in a zoo. They wanted to see the Americans. Like, like, just like out of no other reason than curiosity. Now, I want to be careful. I want to build a whole theology out of my experience. I, there's just something that connects Jesus' idea about going with his own statements and his own experience of, 
You would think that if Jesus believed the idea about you don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary, he would have just stayed in Nazareth. He would have just stayed in Galilee, in his own little region, and kind of hung out. I believe that even without this slide, Jesus' command remains pretty clear. Go to the nations. What I'm trying to do here is trying to understand, I wonder why he told us to go. I'm trying to go a little bit deeper than just what the straight commandment says. And I'm trying to scratch it like, why did you tell us to go? And I really think there's a lot of wisdom in this part. Jesus experienced it firsthand. If you remember what happens in one of the times when he's in Nazareth, they're going to throw him off a cliff. All right? I mean, his own immediate people didn't accept him. And I think he knew that, you know what? Once in a while, a prophet does need to go to another town. Are we prophets? I'm equating that to missions. So you got to make that small jump with me and go with it. I think I agree with you, and I like the idea of this. I'm just trying to work through it in my head. But, like, even if it's in my hometown, you know, like, I don't know everybody in my hometown. They don't know me. And I'm basically a stranger. Why are you at my doorstep? Right. You know, does it have, wouldn't that be in the same idea? So, like, let me ask you this. If, you, if someone knocks on your door and you open the door and it's like Bob and Susie Johnson from Indiana, right, and they look like everybody else, you might give them a little bit less time than if like, somebody knocks on the door and it's like you know, who, so-and-so and so-and-so who are Nigerian missionaries here in the United States. And if they say, like, hi, we're here from Nigeria, you might, might give them just a little bit more time. Now, in America, we don't give anybody time. That's why I'm saying might. When I've been to Mexico, to Russia, uh, to the Middle East, I'm trying to think of places where I've been where just by the sheer presence of being an outsider, you're given way more of an audience. Not just the knock on the door. I mean, we'd be walking down the street. I remember the image of Dave Sial. He stopped this woman and the translator, speaking through a translator, he said, there are some Americans here visiting your town. Would you like to speak to them? And she said, oh, yes, yes, and like Russian. And it's pouring rain. And I mean, like, no umbrellas or anything. But just because out of politeness, if nothing else. And you know Dave can evangelize for hours. You know, he's standing there, and I'm like, come on, wrap it up, man. It's like pouring rain. And the, and, but you know what? She didn't budge until he was done talking, and she nodded, and she kept working. Just because she wants to know, like, what's he doing here, and I'm going to give him an audience. That's the kind of thing I think might work. It's, like I said, experience more than, than straight out of the Bible, but that's my thought. In that case, yeah, it could be. If you notice, even, <laughs> I hate to even make the statement, even the Mormons send their missionaries to other states. You don't get to be a missionary in your hometown. Maybe if they read nothing else on the Bible, they at least got this statement and went, that's some pretty good wisdom. You notice that when you send someone to be on a mission, you, don't, you take them out of there. Now, there's other reasons, by the way, I think. When we go on a mission trip, we're out of our comfort zone. We're relying completely on God. Or we're at least out of our comfort zone enough where God is much more real and necessary than when you get to go home and sleep in your bed every night. All right? There's something that happens when you're packing up, getting on a plane, a train, whatever it is, to go somewhere far away, leaving behind stuff. I mean, suddenly you start thinking about greater things. When you're on the mission field, you're relying on him. You're not comfortable. You're not in your place of you don't have your support network around you. You don't have your distractions around you. You're on the field. Now, could that happen in the United States if I sent you to Ohio or if I sent you to Florida? It probably could, even though we have some of the same modern comforts in there. You're still out of your element. How many people in this room have been on a mission trip? That's good. It almost like everybody in here. All right, so here's some issues I see in missions that we should look at real fast to kind of 
wrap this up, because I don't think anybody's, like I said, no one here is going to say we should not do missions. We need to be careful about Orthodox Christianity versus American Christianity. There are so many things that our gospel message in America has been polluted with, and that's that cultural idolatry that the author was pointing at just in that quote a little bit ago. You know, things like individual rights, freedom, all these kind of things that we just blended like American ideas and Christianity into one civic religion that in this country we call Christianity. But if you really start peeling out some of those ideas, I think Orthodox Christianity can be radically different than the Christianity we practice in America or the gospel that we preach in our churches. When we go out on the mission field, that's especially true. We gotta take to them an Orthodox Christianity, one that might even be contextualized to their country and their experience, but certainly not take them like the American Christianity. We laugh now about like some of the Spanish missionaries who came to the Indians in California, remember? And how they made them wear like white shirts and pants and all that stuff when they became a Christian. But it's still happening. It's still happening. I can't remember who told us the story about the missionaries who stood up in a, in a church and they were doing missionary work in, I think it was Papua New Guinea. And it was one of these countries where the women are kind of topless. And so if you became a Christian, what they did was they, they gave you a bra or like a bikini top or something you had to start wearing. And the person telling the church about the missionary, they said, praise God, we've given away over like 100,000 tops, you know, or whatever it is, to women to start wearing. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like if everybody in the culture does it one way, you become a Christian, you start wearing the funny outfit. Like how's that going to help people? They go... Oh, did you talk to the missionaries? You did? Did they give you one of those funny tops to wear? Like, now you look like a fool. Because we were thinking in our mind, the way we live, the way we believe, the way we read the Bible has got to be the right way. You can't be a Christian and do that. Long-term missions versus, oh, I'm sorry, local missions. Let's do that one first. Local missions versus global missions. We were just talking about that and that tension between you can do it here. I'm not saying you can't be a missionary around you. I'm not saying you can't be a missionary to another city or another state. Okay? Just get out of the mindset that we are going to be missionaries just at work. I'm saying just at work. I'm not saying you can't be a missionary at work. But if your idea of being a missionary is being a missionary just to the people around you, two things will happen. You're not going. And the second thing is you probably won't get much done. Because it's, we'll, we'll be in our comfort zone and we'll just, just put it off and put it off and put it off. And not much will happen. When you're on the mission field and you're there for two months or two years or two weeks, you know there's a time period. I've got to get some stuff done. When we're at work for an indefinite amount of time, we're in our neighborhood an indefinite amount of time, for some reason going over and knocking down the door next door and inviting your neighbors over for a cup of coffee to start to build a relationship is always something that can happen next week. Short-term versus long-term missions. You know, a few, maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, there was no such thing as a short-term mission trip. I mean, it took so long to get places around the world, you couldn't go there for two or three weeks. I mean, it was just impossible. Today, we have short-term mission trips, but a whole new issue has come up in the church. Should you be doing them? I mean, there are people who actually debate, is there any effectiveness that comes from short-term mission trips? I mean, of course, there's got to be something, but is it really worth all the money and the effort that we make? Or should we just sponsor long-term missionaries? Why do I say that? Well, it really has to do with this next one down here, having a missions experience versus being an experienced missionary. A lot of our missions efforts are really more about us 
not about the people we're going to serve. Most short-term missions, especially at the younger ages, you know, like, remember that junior high or high school short-term mission trip you did? Like, you know, like a one-day trip to the barrio in Tijuana or something, or that two-day trip where you spent the night somewhere. You know, that was more about us. That was more about freaking us out about how much we have and how little they have. That was more about when they tell you, like, don't give away any money to the kids. And what are the first thing you do when you get there? You go, hey, kid, here's some money. You know, like, you're going to save that kid by giving them, like, 100 pesos. Okay? Because there's that debate. And I, I'm just highlighting as something that you should be thinking about. I'm not against short-term missions. That's the only ones I'm able to do right now is short-term missions. I think there is some effectiveness. One way we cured the effect was to go back to the same place, kind of like what Paul did. He would build relationships with specific places and go back to the same places. But even that, after a while, sometimes I think, you know, it would really be effective. You just got to move there if you really want to be effective. Just live there for a while. So thank God there are people who are doing that. But again, do we want a missions experience or do we want to be experienced missionaries? This shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about us to come back and go, wow, I feel so changed. I mean, that's a side benefit. That's great that our relationship with God gets strengthened. But missions is primarily about the people that we're going to love and work with and work side by side. And I, I like the comment you made, Jamie, about going up to, to, to people in their countries and lifting them up. And that's been a core strength that we've tried to do in our trips is never to go to the country and saying, like, dun dun dun, dun like, here we are to save the day. More to say, like, you are the national church that is here every day, toughing it out, 52 weeks a year. We only show up one or two weeks a year. How can we help you while we're here? And even if it's just to pray and love them and hang out with them and do whatever they need, because they're the ones that have the, the hard time. Being a missionary versus being a supporter of missions. And let me just close with this thing. You know... I was a person who for many years believed that I was called to just be a supporter of missions. I had the opposite problem. I was like, I'm too busy. Like, you don't know the life I live. You don't know the demands I have. You don't know the stress I'm under at work. You don't know the responsibility. My firm would fall apart without me. And so I made this dichotomy in my mind between some people are called to be missionaries and some people are called to support them. And that may be true in a general sense when you're talking about long-term missionaries and people back at home supporting them. But when I made that division in my mind, I became very comfortable with it. And I lived in it, and it became sinful. Because I heard people from my church saying, we need to go on a mission trip, we need to do this. And I'm thinking, hey, buddy, I'm with you. I'll write the check. You go. And I even started to build a whole theology around the stewardship and money. And, you know, I'm big into preaching on those things. But the thing was, I started actually believing I'm actually called to just stay back and stay home to raise money. I wasn't really called. I just didn't want to go. Because I didn't want to sacrifice what I would have to give up at work and the responsibility and the stress of leaving town to do this. So the first time it actually happened where I just felt God saying, you got to go, you got to go, I signed up. And I said to the leader, I'll I'll sign up for the trip. I'll even buy the ticket, but I probably will not be able to go because I've got a trial. I've got this. I've got that. I'm just way too important to be able to go. And no sooner had I signed up and paid all those things and all those very, very important things that I had to do that the wheels of justice would just not run without me, all got continued and pushed out and I had a totally clear calendar for that period of time. And now it was like really putting the test to say, would I go or not? So I did. I told my firm that I was taking like two weeks off. They couldn't believe it. Not just because it was me, because nobody takes two weeks off. 
that's ridiculous, even though we all are supposed to have like a month vacation, like nobody actually takes it. And there I was in Russia for the first time, wondering whether I was supposed to be a missionary or a supporter of missions, or for the first time, the difference was starting to break down. And I remember saying to God on the mission field, this is the last time I do this. You know, not, not because I'm like mad or anything, just you know it's not going to happen again, so I better do everything I can while I'm here. I had a missions experience, you know, it's almost like I did it once. Thanks, God, that was really fun. Thanks for clearing my schedule. You got me here. But you and I both know I can't do this again. You and I know there's just too much going on in my life, and it's impossible for me. That's probably why I had to go back four more times or whatever after that, you know, because I said the word impossible. But you know what I wanted to hear from God was, nothing is impossible with me, you know, like all things are possible. That's what I was waiting for him to say. Like I'm saying, there's no way, there's no way. And he was to say, all things are possible, John. But what he said to me was, yeah, you idiot. It is impossible with your schedule. It is impossible with the way that you live your life. It is impossible with the commitments that you've driven yourself into work-wise and otherwise financially. I never asked you to do those things. I asked you to go. I asked you to disciple the nations. Maybe you didn't get it on a personal invitation, but it's in Matthew. It's right there. It's general to everybody. That's you too. You're supposed to be there. And I was like, but how? And his answer was, hey, you work out the how. I mean, don't ask me to perform a miracle when you're the one that kind of worked yourself into this thing. Give up what you've put yourself into and stop building a distinction between being a missionary and supporting missionaries. Yeah, you might spend most of your life supporting missions because you're good at making some dough and you can give it to other people. But that doesn't give you an excuse to stay home. You've got to get out there too as much as you can. Within the next couple of years, I started really hearing that in my life, and that's what led me to leave a large firm behind and make the really scary step of stepping out on my own because I realized I do have to do this. And I'm probably going to be called to do this more than just the first time, and it happened the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And we're planning future times to make it happen again. And now we finally have that ability. And yeah, that's scary. And I'm still a supporter of missions, and I've never stopped. But that's the place where I say, some people, like you said, can't. So whatever they can do works. But I think in this day and age with the support that we have in churches, I think most people, if they wanted, you know, they could. But that's the thing I want to make sure we none of us ever do is make the same excuses that I made. And this is going to go back to something I said I wouldn't do, which is talk about what it does for us sometimes. But if you, if you think you don't have a mission's heart, I think the first thing to do is to test it and to actually step out on the mission field a number of times because it almost creates a heart for missions. It's almost like you may think you don't have a heart for like, you know, I don't know, starving kids or something, but work with some for a while and all of a sudden it changes your whole perspective. Missions is one of those weird things where when we step out, God does this transforming act in us where we start for the first time to see people the way he sees people. I mean, to love people in a way where, I don't wanna say like we divide them into saved and unsaved, but like when you're talking to somebody and you feel them start to struggle against the gospel sometimes, it's almost like you can almost feel what it must feel like when they're slipping away and God's like, oh, like I, you see what I'm saying? There's like that feeling. And that, I, don't, I never had that feeling before. I never even looked through the eyes of God like how he sees people who know him and don't know him and how sometimes somebody will just go, nah, I don't want to hear anything, and you just, your heart just breaks for the right reasons, not because you're trying to add up numbers or come back to give reports, in fact, we stopped even giving missions reports. We just start coming, just coming back, you know, like forget the reports. 
but our heart would still break because you saw somebody who was like knocking on the door and then just decided not to do it. But that heart developed by being there in the first place. So just as an encouragement, it didn't, you know, do it once, do it twice. Sometimes you'll discover you have a heart for missions that you never even knew you had. Yeah. Uh, most Christian missionary trips are during the summertime. Like, is there a certain, like, oh, once a year that's good enough for me. See you later. I'm done. I get to go back to my own life. I did what the Lord wanted me to do. I think you're actually hitting on something very important. For us, the decision was, and I follow Paul's model on this, to build relationships with a couple of churches. That's the model I, I believe. Some people say, go to as many places as you can in your lifetime and just spread the word any way you can. That's not unbiblical. But to me, I see a better model of building relationships with people so that you're not just on a shotgun missions approach. But like when we, go, like we went to Russia four times, five times actually as a church, every time we went to the same city, the same church, small church and built that relationship with them. So that even if we never go back there, like Paul would never went back to certain places because he was imprisoned even, he still wrote to them and had a relationship with them after the fact that made that missionary experience continue for many years and to support and to love and to pray for those kind of people. I believe that even if you did that only every three years or every two years, I mean, ideally it'd be great if you could do something every year, but if you can't do that, that at least in that fashion, it would be like visiting people you don't visit all the time. Like maybe you can't visit your parents on the East Coast all the time, but you see them every once or twice or a year, whatever it is, or every two years. Missions, if you build it into a relationship, is the same kind of thing. Okay, I promise I'm going to shut up. So this is the last story I'm going to tell you. The first time I went to Russia, I came back to work. And now it's time for me to come back to work after being in Russia. My secretary had instructions to tell everybody that was calling for those two weeks, since there's no phones that I could really get a hold of in Russia and no way to get any email that first trip that I was on, to just tell everybody that I was out of the country on business and that was it. I was involved in a very litigious case with a lawyer in Chicago. And she was, we were always at each other's throats. When I got back into town, I come in and of course on my desk is like 12 messages from her wanting to talk to me immediately about everything. And my secretary comes in, she goes, you better call her. And I said, yeah, yeah, I better take care of this right away. So I call her, and she says, well, finally, you get back into town. Where have you been? And I'm thinking, you know, she's a lawyer. She's kind of a tough woman. The last thing I'm going to say is, on a mission trip, I'm trying to be tough. So I go, I, I was out of town. Now let's talk about the case. She goes, no, 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 where were you? And I said, I, I, was, uh, I was out of town. I mean, I got your messages. What's going on in the case? And she goes, why won't you tell me where you were? And I was like, I was in Russia. And she goes, what were you doing in Russia? And then before I could say anything else, she says, I hear you were on a mission trip. And I'm like, I'm going to kill my secretary. Like, I can't believe this. She said, you know what? My church has been trying to figure out a way to get to Russia for the last three years. And we just don't know enough in the language barrier on how to do it. I'm kind of like looking at the phone, you know, realizing like God is up there right now going, uh, you failed that test miserably. <laughs> so suddenly now that we're both like in our Christian costumes, we can start to talk to each other in code like, oh, now it's okay for me to brag about being on a missions trip because I'm talking to another Christian who I can earn points for being on a mission trip. I spent the next couple of days compiling all the information on how to get to Russia. We put it into a little booklet and I sent it to her and her missions committee and said, you know, I don't know if this will help you guys out, but we sent them everything, the visa forms, all the translated stuff, all the information, all the travel agencies, all the hotels, the translators, the church that they need to get the visas from, everything, sent it over to her. 
And then we went back to fighting our case, which somehow magically got a lot easier. And we resolved it after we both kind of identified each other. Going and coming back was, was the mission part. But when I came back, I had opportunities waiting for me for the next weeks as people came into my office and go, I heard you went out of town on a mission trip. What was that all about? And to start talking there. And there was the test where I could actually be a missionary in my own hometown finally and see. I failed the first test. I got a little bit better as time went on and learned how to put them all together. So throw that out there in a number of ways to encourage you. Most of you guys have been on a trip. Let's do another one. Let's go somewhere else. Let's not stop at having satisfied the requirement like something we check off the box. Okay, this is something we need to make as a lifelong experience for us. Let's be supporters and missionaries at the same time. Let's be experienced, not just somebody who had an experience. And let's pray and close tonight. Lord, you have a heart for the nations. And we've prayed this prayer so many times before that you laid into our hands the task of telling the nations. How many times, Lord, we've prayed that I would not have made that decision. I would have not laid into our hands the responsibility of taking your word to the people that you love. How you left it in our hands is a mystery, Lord. Why you did when you know us to be selfish, uncomfortable, and wanting to stay in our own lands, in our own comfort zones. Lord, you command us to go. Just as you as a prophet were not accepted in your own hometown, you command us to go. Lord, maybe we be faithful in this one area. Learn how to take the true Orthodox gospel to the nations. Learn how to dwell with them in their own national context. Learn to shed pride and idolatry from our culture and just love you. Just love you enough to obey your commandments and to trust that if we go, you're going to do the rest. Your Holy Spirit is already active in every country in the world, Lord. We're just going there on an appointment to meet the Holy Spirit on things that your Spirit is already doing. Pray these things in your name. Amen.